Uh, greetings, everyone. My name is Nakaja. Thank you, Obahi, for having me on your podcast again. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, my name is, again, Nakaja. I'm the owner of the More Search Association and More Serve, and I just recently opened up a foundation based in Ghana called the Nihas Foundation. Um, so I'm just really excited to talk to you more about my work and for us to, yeah, have this dialogue. Hello and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewanfo, and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started with this episode. Thank you so much, Nakasha. So yeah, the, the last time we, we talked, it was really an interesting conversation. So today, I think we're also going to have a good time because... Um, we do have uh, common objectives as African people in the diaspora and uh, who have um, uh, who are interested in our progress as a people. So today we are looking at the uh, storytelling and how we might leverage that uh, for our own good. Uh, of course, we can look at it from the point of view of business, look at it from the point of view of building a community, or even look at it from the point of view of, uh, of, of heritage and also of survivor. Storytelling mm. for me in this sense is very important. So uh, let's uh, look at it this way. How do you describe storytelling? Oh, that's really an interesting question. There's so many different ways of looking at storytelling. We can look at it from a modern sense or looking at it based off different cultures. Um, you have griots, right? In, in the African diaspora, you have something called griots that are able to tell stories or messages from like, old times or from their ancestors and it really uh creates um this this oral history of intelligence and knowledge that's passed on from generation to generation you also have something called galis in mali which is where um my family originates from is mali and these galis are able to tell stories through music a lot of times they can do it through the kora um, they can do it through hearts, or they can just do it through singing. And in their singing, they're usually passing on the message. And it's really powerful. It's really effective. Um, but you have these different types of storytellers in different communities in different ways. In the African-American community, you have people who told stories orally, right? And they, did, they didn't necessarily have the name Griot, or maybe sometimes they did uh, usurp that meaning as well. But um, it's so important to be able to tell on these stories from one generation to another because so much is learned from it. And, it. and when you don't have that storytelling, it could really take away that history or that culture, or those those messages that need to be passed on from one family to another. So, Yeah, thank you so much, Nakasha. Thank you for making mention of um, the Malia approach to storytelling from the point of view of Griot also. Uh, from uh, how it is told in the, in, in America. Uh, now, I, I think it is it might be important to even look at storytelling uh, as, uh, as an instrument to connect intergenerational uh, branches, no? Because uh, we are here, we don't know what happened in the past, but if we go to uh, ancient Egypt, uh, it can be of, even in Nubia, we enter into a tomb, we, we see images there, those are communicate, those are information. That were left there by uh, being able to decode this information uh we can uh, learn something from the past so i i want i don't know what you want to say about 
uh, storytelling as a tool to build a connection between generations? Oh, absolutely. So storytelling, from what I know of it, is supposed to be able to send messages to the youth. So it's, it's there. And there's different ways of storytelling that we can look at. So another way is proverbs that I didn't mention, right? So sometimes we have these like sayings and proverbs that we know from the past that's supposed to give us some type of message. Um, one of them that I know off the top of my hand is uh, when there's two elephants fighting is the grass that gets destroyed, right? And that's supposed to be a message of your, like when when there's conflict, it's the surrounding environment that ends up being the product of it. Like, just different, different things that um, ends up being told to us and those things getting passed on, it can really leave an imprint on a child's mind with proverbs or with different stories that were told or different past experiences of our elders, right? Or even like, even before our elders, our ancestors, those things can cause for us to have a sense of purpose or direction of what we're supposed to be going. And there's another saying on um, history repeats itself, right? So if you don't know your past, you don't know where you're gonna go in the future. So storytelling is able to bridge that gap somehow. So when there's an absence of storytelling, um, the, the generations before, can or leading afterwards um, can be lost essentially. So storytelling is really powerful, it's really effective, and it's really important that we start to encourage people in our communities to tell their stories because there's always something to be learned um, and, and it's not something that should be like concealed or, or something like that. Sometimes people think that they don't have anything to be shared um, which is not true. Everyone has a message to share what they've gone through. And together, the more stories that we're able to hear, the better that we're able to conceptualize how similar we are within the diaspora. Uh -huh. All right. Yeah, that within the diaspora is something that I really find very interesting now. Uh, because uh, as a people uh, that are away from their home, uh, how did they manage to build the rituals that made them to remember where they are coming from? And because this uh, diaspora, these Africans that are away from Africa, now it will become relevant even uh, in the time of uh, of slave of slavery. How people have managed to keep track of where they are coming from. This can be evident in Cuba, uh, in in Jamaica, uh, in Brazil, and even in the United States. How people manage to remember story despite what has happened to them, despite the torture and all of that, and that story helped them to build their own culture right where they are there. So I am trying to look at storytelling now as an instrument that can be used to build a community. What, what do you have to say about that? What do you remember of that? Yeah, uh, storytelling can be used as a community, which is why I like I'm saying people everyone in our community should really embrace uh, telling their own stories in different ways and whatever facet that is and in, in creating a community behind that. But what that entails is not only having people create stories, but having a community that's set upon listening to those stories and learning from those stories and taking it uh, with pride. But it's, it's absolutely, um, I think, something that's becoming a trend now when you're having more, I've been seeing like a larger community of people within the diaspora who are creating content for our children, right? So like creating these cartoons, these animations and these storybooks on um, 
old, like, like old, I want to say older uh, ideas, like Anansi. I've been seeing like children's books on that or uh, actual movies or shows, animations on that. But also like you have the Nigerian gods, like I've seen animations on that. Like so many different things are starting to come forth. And it's really important and beautiful, especially the, the cultural genocide that has happened um, in the diaspora. So I, it's definitely a community around that. But then you also have, um, there's the Homi community that I want to say exists in South Carolina that ended up being created around in the 60s, like when the civil rights era was happening. Uh, they created a community based off this concept of also like, like knowing that they came from Africa and wanting to uh, revitalize that part of their history despite them being taken away from their culture. And so with that, comes a lot of storytelling as well, right? They had to be able to capture the stories of the communities and cultures that they were more than likely ripped away from and reimagine what that could look like in America, right? So they created an entire community on storytelling and, and reclaiming narratives. Um, so it, it's really, that's a really beautiful example of that as well as what you're saying. But you also have that all across the Americas that exist. Um, as well. And then also being able to hone in on that storytelling on the continent of Africa would be just as beautiful too, like preserving cultures. There's been a huge um, whitewashing that has happened in African countries as far as like whitewashing goes with the missionaries and, and different methods in order to destroy the culture as it is and to disrupt storytelling and disrupt the griots and disrupt like the base foundation of a lot of African societies. And so what's important is finding ways to stories and ensure that they're able to be passed on for the next generation and not only for the next generation, but across the DS world, right? Across you, you were talking of, uh, uh, well, of course, looking at uh, storytelling being used to build a community. And when we are looking at um, the African diaspora now, you are you were talking of uh, having people to listen to the story because if you just tell a story and nobody's there to listen to it, uh, then it's, it's really not going to work because uh, where the tradition is coming from is people are seated together uh, either in front of uh, under a tree or under... Uh, there is always an object in the middle. It can be fire, it can be anything that where everybody is listening to and people are sort of building a community. This sort of uh, secular uh, structure of life as it had always been. I remember one time, um, one book that I wrote in 2015, it happened to have been accepted at the University of Verona where I live uh, as one of the books for children to learn about, um, and to learn about other culture, of course. Uh, in that book, it started with the storytelling where a lot of children, of course, I use my village as an example in Nigeria, uh, are gathered uh, under a tree and there is a man uh, that is telling the story. And one, one thing I really find interesting, of course, some anthropologists will confirm that, that they really uh, make any part in them, uh, is that this man that was a storyteller, his name is Oko Uje, of course, he's coming from the land that is called Uje, uh, so that is where the name comes from, because Oko, in my language, which is Asa, uh, basically me the son of so uh Okobuji, meaning that the son of Okobuji, which of course relates to his land uh, have told the children every story that he would tell them 
But the point is that almost every evening the children go there, he always has something to tell them. Uh, because it would have meant that if you are right, if you are reading a book, if you finish to read it, then you drop it. There is no need to read it anymore. But in this case, now we see that this story is continuously be told. It's alive always. So they are never bored. They never lack what they will listen to. It looked to them like a kind of a ritual that they must participate in every day. So they have something in the middle of them that they need to listen to. And this was something that I really found very interesting. Because if we look at the diaspora now, uh, I don't know if uh, this object in the middle, which in this case, uh, like I was talking about, they have a tree and they have a fire. So, of course, the participants are the children. They sat in semicircle, and that is this man who is telling them the story. Are we able to reenact a similar situation? Of course, we don't have trees to do this in the diaspora, uh, so that everybody sit together and we are having a common object that builds us together, so that as we listen to story, for this story can actually be, it might not necessarily be like those that are told uh, in the village, it might be about our stronghold, our fear, our being victim of racism, something that connects all of us together so that we can we can tap into our uh, our our weaknesses and our power and then build something that can help us to survive uh, what we are going through. Uh, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, that's so interesting. I think that's like we can I feel like as far as having something that's actually in the center, for us to tell a story, you can have something symbolic, right? But I think that it would have to be within the communities you're trying to build, like having more communities that have that concept of like having, creating circles and having something in the middle that animates life, essentially like fire or like like a tree or whatever else that may look like, I don't know. But that's, it's very interesting to think about as far as like something that, pulls people together and it is something that could be used in order to I guess create that that solidarity when it comes to storytelling I guess it could be said as um but symbolically now that we have this new digital world maybe something could be created in yeah, the digital world that we create that could have that same type of meaning somehow when we're creating those types of spaces online with people. Um, but really, I, I think the best thing is is to have it in our hearts and to carry that with us when we're meeting each other and listening to each other, to each other's stories, and also encouraging for the publication of it, like to not to only have it in a private setting, but to share it to the world because you never know, like, how that story is going to impact someone else who's never heard of it before, right? From wherever you come from. So I, I think it's always important to value each other's stories, value each other's voices and understand that, you know, my voice is an extension of your voice, is an extension of her voice or his voice, right? So I, I think having that type of concept in our minds in our day-to-day -day as we travel throughout the world or stay in our hometowns, like we, we should remember that for sure. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed um, a Jamaica storyteller, uh, Otto, let me put it that way. She have wrote a book, uh, but she's very good. Her name is Eva Brown. So she was telling me uh, her, her story. Uh, which of course have been used to have, she have used to um, she have transformed into a business and now she's leveraging that 
uh, to make money for herself, which I find to be uh, very legitimate. And I s sort of tend to tell a lot of people uh, in the diaspora that we can do this in that we do have story. There is none of us that don't have story. In fact, uh, here in Obehi podcast, we say a lot that everyone has a story to share. There is no single person in this world who do not have story. But how do we leverage it? So uh, this uh, this lady was was saying something very important that our story are not ours to keep; they are ours to share. Because exactly. when you share that story, that is when it can help another person. Another person can learn from it. But if you don't share it, it remains with you. Then it dies inside of you. Then it's of no essence to the community or to humanity as well. But right. sometimes we don't share our story. We think it is only for us. We pass through situations, circumstances that uh, are supposed to teach us a lesson. Sometimes we ourselves don't even know what is the lesson from that particular situation. But by sharing the story, other people come to learn from it. Therefore, it makes sense to the entire community. I don't know if you want to yeah. add anything to that line. Absolutely. No, I, I, I definitely value what she said and, and I agree with it a hundred percent. I have also been writing for I, as long as I can remember, honestly, but I recently just published a book called Play the Game, Hierarchical Simulation. And what this book is really about is I grew up in the States. So I'm looking at the structure of America and its institutions and its laws and how it really aims to strip away the African identity. Um, and that's the existence of the United States of America. And so I start off telling my story from a very young age of me first having exposure to learning about Africa in middle school at the Howard University Middle School um, Howard University's campus, which is a, a prominent HBCU in the United States of America, but it's named after a white man. So I start off telling that story and how um, it was incredible to have been able to go there as I was exposed to teachers who were really passionate about African people in the diaspora and they were pan-Africanists and they created curriculums around it. But later on, those teachers would get fired from this HBCU middle school, right? So it's so much power in, in telling those those stories because so many people don't know or can conceptualize institutions and legal systems and governments um, in around the world, but let alone in America that create this environment that goes against African people, that is aimed to oppress African people and their cultures, right? So um, that I start off with that story, but then I go into like me entering into the military and how that institution itself had close similarities to uh, plantation-like ideas of how to run people and divide people and, and keep these uh, concepts of being belligerent or violent towards people to keep them in a state of fear, to be able to follow directions. So like, it's important to be able to tell those stories because a lot of people in the civilian world in the United States of America have no idea how the military is run. They don't know because they're not in it. They don't understand the type of programming they put in place to have hundreds of thousands, if not, I don't know, a million soldiers follow behind their agenda of, quote unquote, protecting America against, quote unquote, terrorists, right, which is their rhetoric. So if you don't tell stories like that, people are just going to think the military is here to protect us. 
not knowing that there's all types of hor horrifying things that goes on to the military and racism is just one uh, aspect of it, right? So if more people don't talk about it, which they don't, especially African people in the military, they don't talk about those aspects of it. They just are in there with their objective and then they get out. Maybe if you have a one-on-one -on -one with them, they'll talk about it. But because people don't talk about it, the cycle continues of the, the actions that are able to be perpetuated. The um, similar things can be said about um, different institutions that may exist, schools, universities, uh, police systems, whatever the case may be. And so we need to hold them accountable with our word because our word can become our sword. And that's through writing. And that's also through organizing with each other as well. So the way that that can be leveraged in a way is uh, our ability to be able to not only like listen to each other is, is a part of the support, but supporting each other in other means as well. If we're able to support each other in an economic sense, that's even powerful. And I don't mean economic sense as far as like just purchasing, but as far as like organizing beyond the dollar, because that's where the world is going to. So you can be able to leverage stories in a way that you can build communities outside of the system that has already been created. And, and, and that would even be an even more powerful story. I was talking to um, one of my partners with the Nihas Foundation in Ghana, and they're in a, com a prominent community um, that's in a rural area, but that is huge for mining. So you have a lot of uh, mining companies from Germany or Australia or elsewhere that are coming into these areas and using the same manipulative and deceptive tactics they used hundreds of years ago to be able to get access to uh, gold, essentially, and then leaving the people who live there with like basically viscerally nothing and removing them from their communities and, and not giving them much to be able to reestablish themselves or to even benefit from their land that was placed on top of gold, right? And a lot of those stories are going I'm told too, and I, and I was encouraging my partner to be like, hey, like we need to be writing about this. We need to be publicizing this, but it's, it, there's dangers in that because the government can be involved. <laughs> so it's, it's a fascinating thing. And if we're able to hypothetically in this situation, create voices or create stories or create narratives around the people who are being impacted by this and get more media attention, you just created an entire community that can not only uh, save themselves hypothetically from the greedy companies, but to empower themselves in a way that goes beyond uh, requesting for the mining company to compensate them, but owning their, their land and owning the resources that come from their land and being able to create wealth based off of that, that goes beyond uh, having the Ghana city being pegged to the dollar or whatever the case scenario, like, no, that this is where communities are empowering themselves and owning their own resources off their own land. And that's how it should be. But it can't happen if we keep not telling these types of stories that are ongoing. That's neocolonialism. That's globalization. Right. But these these stories are going untold and unnoticed because it's not popular. It's not fun to talk about. Right, so it's, it's a lot to be said about leveraging stories and narratives and coming together and support to do it. There's so much power in it. I believe you. There is so much power in it. Yeah, like I was saying a while ago, I think storytelling is also for the for the purpose of survival. If we don't tell our story, we can we risk 
going extinct. Because what will happen is that other people will tell the story. But what if the other people don't have your interests at heart? They can write you off your they can write you off existence and use you basically as object because you don't have story. You see, I'm thinking that uh, in, in one of these books, in these five-part books about storytelling, uh, that uh, we need to think maybe, for example, of Asian Africans, how they manage to survive. They survive because they know the story. Now, let me explain. If you go into uh, the, the, the forest or the desert or uh, a savannah in Africa, for example, uh, you don't play with the lion. Why you don't play with the lion? Because story tells you what the lion can do to you. By knowing this story, you will be alive. If you don't know this story, you think lion is like a zebra. You go there to make fun with him, to play with him, then you will end up being eaten. Now, the, the people in Asian Africa know where the food is. So when they are hungry, they go to that particular place to eat before agriculture, of course, was developed. They know where the water is so that when they look for when they are looking to drink water, they go to that specific place to get water. And they also know where the danger is so that they don't go there to have fun. Because when they go there, that will mean death. So story in this sense can be used for, you, uh, for the purpose of keeping you alive. Like mm. I was talking about uh, the, the story that I've written before, 2015, I made the stream water. The man there telling story of conflict, story of war, story of who are the enemy in this village. Because in the village, in the, in the, in the surrounding village in Obuji, as I was describing in the book, not all of them are friends. The children came to know of this one through the story that they were told. Because if you now believe that everybody is your friend, then you got to mess around with your enemy. That is very costly. So he told them about the friends. He told them all the nine villages that are existing in the neighborhood. And he also told them that not all your friends are your friends. These are your friends. So this is who you need to deal with in this area. These are your enemy. This is how you need to deal with them in this area. And by knowing this, when you go out to play, you don't just play with anything and with anyhow with anybody. You need to know who you are where you are coming from through the story. But the question I have there is, why is it that we don't tell, it's not only that we don't tell story, maybe it's because we are not coordinating it in a, in a strategic way. Because if you are a father in a house, you go to work, like me, for example, when I come home, I do share with my wife and my son. We do talk about it. I believe that everybody does this. If something happened to you outside, you go home, you reenact the event to the people in the house so that they know what has happened to you. That is building memory. But yeah. if that is all we do within the limited circle, that is, that is where it ends. But right. we could actually take that experience and interiorize it and elaborate on it and make it consumable for other people that are not within the restricted family. Therefore, story can be used to build also a larger community instead of just the nucleus of the community, which is the family. But why are we not doing that enough? Is it because we don't have instruments to do that, the environment that promotes it? Do we lack the ability to be able to communicate? Because like I, I'm just saying, 
all of us are storyteller, whether we know it or not. I think sometimes people don't really think that people want to listen to their stories, but I think that they'll be surprised about how many people um, do want to listen to your story. And maybe it's not technically in your immediate circle. Maybe sometimes it, it may be halfway across the world. And that's why it's really important to to share your story because you never know, like, like I'm repeating myself, but you really never know who's going to get impacted by it or who's going to be inspired by your story or who's going to learn from your story. Um, and also understanding now as we're in this new technological era, there's so many mediums to tell your story now. Like we're doing it um, through a podcast, but like you can also do it through writing. You can also do it through music. You can also do it through poetry. You can also do it through uh, art, right? And then there's visual art and now there is NFTs and so many different ways. Even like building a business can be another form of telling your story, right? You can use that as a medium to tell your story. So there's so many different ways. And I think another thing is people don't think that telling your story can be beneficial in the sense of, of uh, being able to have funds or being able for it to fund you, right? So people are worried about like, okay, this isn't gonna put food on my table telling my story. Like no one really cares about what my story is. Um, but to that, I challenge you or I challenge the audience to really think about different ways that it can and it could. And it's just about us reframing the way that we think about our stories and thinking about what our limitations are. Like we're putting limits on ourselves when we say things like that. And it's not true. Like you, you would be surprised as to who's willing to support you in the economic means to have your story be heard or to even hear your story. Um, so I, I think that there, there is that to be discussed as well. Um, and I, I, think, I think that's pretty much it, but I think that we're doing a better job as far as like, I guess, adapting to the new age that we're in since COVID to create have these creative ways of, um, expressing ourselves. And I think with that comes a lot of more people who are willing to share their stories, but um, we need as many as possible, especially in this crisis of, you know, knowledge and truth. So. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. The, the tools of the age to tell story is also another thing to talk about because it is important. Times have changed. See, I was saying before, okay, I'm making reference to the book a number of times now. <laughs> uh, anyway, the book is available also on Amazon. I mean, there's the stream water. Because the, the people at the time, uh, or the, the storyteller at the time, Oko Uje, was literally just doing oral narration. Even though oral narration is actually one of the very earliest forms of storytelling, but that is not the only way to tell story. We can actually use tools of the A because if you need to do oral narration, maybe have people sit around you, you are going to tell a story to a limited amount of people because there is just a certain amount of people that can gather in one place at any time. But now we have internet. You, you are somewhere far, hundreds of kilometers away from where I am. And we are talking, we are hearing each other, we are sharing, we are feeling each other's, each, each other's moment and space and attention. And we are learning from you. You are learning from me. I am learning from you. And this is really very powerful. This is the tools of the age. How can we leverage this in storytelling so that it can be for our... Because the purpose of telling story is going to be to promote a certain interest. Okay, now, let, let, let me back out a little bit. 
What I mean is that storytelling, we all tell it anyway, whether we know it or not, whether we know how to tell it or not, whether we are interested in it or not, because it's so beautiful to the human consciousness that you cannot avoid it. Whether you are an educator, you are as being a teacher, you are a religious leader, you are a family member, you are working in a place. Are you not going, if you are working in a place, are you not going to tell what happened between you and your co-worker? Maybe when uh, the, the employer of labor came and he tells you, this is how you are going to do, execute this particular uh, task, and you are going to re-narrate that to other people that were not there, that is story. If you are a religious leader, you are going to be reading the sacred text or giving advice to people, and then you are using some preamble to be able to elaborate and illustrate to the people. Those are stories. Whether we know it or not, all of us are storytellers. But all of us are not telling stories strategically. I think that is mm-hmm. what is uh, most important, that uh, how can we use the tools of the age that we have today, the internet, the, the, uh, the, the Skype of the world, we have uh, the social media, how can we use this strategically to tell the story? Not just tell a story, which of course we already do, all of us, but tell a story strategically. Yeah. Um, I, the first thing is, building a community, building, um, I guess, like, if you're talking about business-wise, like building an audience, building a market for it. But really, um, I look at it as like building that community that you have people who are doing similar things, but also is interested in in what that looks like and that support, right? Because this is something that isn't you know, mainstreamed. So it has to be that you have that community that you know, um, first off, or are actively building it once you already start doing your storytelling. Um, strategically, there's so many different ways that you can go about it. But I, I think the first thing is is to continue using the tools that exist to be able to capture it and, and spread it across like countries across like digital zones or whatever the case may be like have it as many places as possible to be shared and to be heard and then um then that goes with marketing like like based off of your community based off your audience how do you want to market this how is the best methods to market it um essentially what are other ways that you can gain a bigger audience like there's so many things to be thought about but i i think the the biggest concern is ensuring that people know how important their story is to be told and then telling it in different facets of uh, having it published online or wherever else physically, if you must. Um, And then having community around that, building a community around that. And I think the building of the community may be the hardest thing is, is finding your, the right community, but don't be discouraged with that. I, I think that's also like the fun part finding different people that, you know, are able to be a part of this magical process of storytelling and listening and whatever the case else that entails. Uh-huh. All right. Thank you for that. You, you drag out into uh, storytelling from the point of view of business because, yes, yeah, storytelling can be used in very many ways. It can be used even in the military uh, in that you tell a certain story to the, to, the, to the soldier who are fighting. That is why they are there. 
because they would not be there. Okay, I know surgery is because you are going to fight, because you are going to be paid, but it go far beyond that. How do you build the image of enemy into you so that, or into the people that are following you so that they are going to kill the other people? Because now, essentially, what we are doing, unlike what other species do, because the lion do not organize to just go and kill 20, 20 elephants and leave them there. They don't go to kill 20 uh, uh, giraffe and leave it there on the street and they go home and, and start celebrating. Ah, we have killed 20 uh, giraffe today. Only human beings do this, that uh, we organize ourselves and we say among ourselves that those people that are in the other territory are our enemy. We define who they are. They have not yet probably done what, they, what we say they are going to do. But we have the, we believe it, we construct it that they might do this. For this reason, we build up uh, uh, a story that helps to justify what they might possibly do. Therefore, we go there to attack them. Now, mm. How do we build up this story in the people to, so that the other people were sitting down together the other day and just laughing? We are not taking guns and shooting them. We see that they are dying. We are just killing them. And yet we go, one person that we march over that, move to the next one, we kill. They move to the next one, we kill. Move to the next one, we kill. We forget now that we all are human beings. Even though we know that we are all human beings, but because of the story that we are told or because of the story we buy into or because of the story we are used or exposed to, for this moment, those people are just objects that can be um, uh, massacred, used, or, or killed. I am trying to see how powerful story can be to us. Yeah, I mean, like thinking about the examples talked about with the military, they're using not only storytelling, but uh, methods of brainwashing, essentially, or, or using psychological control. And the military, the U.S. military, or even like, let's even take a step back and look back at like enslavement, right? People, prisoners of war. That's what I like to call them. I don't like to call them slaves because they're not slaves. They were enslaved people. Usually they were the most, uh, high-functioning people that came from various uh, communities or societies or kingdoms, like, in, in, on the continent of Africa, right? Like, um, so I, I really don't like to call them slaves. I like to call them prisoners of war or enslaved peoples. Um, they were taken from wherever they were taken. They were kidnapped, taken, whatever the case may be, deceived, and then they were brought to the Americas. And at first they had no idea what this English language was. Now really think about this. They had no idea what this English language was. They only spoke the languages that they had and more than likely they knew multiple, multiple languages, right? But they didn't know this one. They didn't know the English language. And so they struggled immensely learning this English language. And it wouldn't be until generations later that they would be able to uh, learn it and master it. And even to this day, we still have people who are illiterate, but there is the in-between stage of people being able to master the English language that are African and the people who only knew their language. And in that in-between stage, there were people who uh, had lost their original language, lost their mother tongue or tongues, and then only had the means of communicating in English their oppressor's language 
And in that space of them losing their mother tongue, which a lot of people relate language to culture, they lose the ties of of their community, of, of their home, of their culture, right? So then you only have what's left is what's in front of you, what your everyday experience is, which again is is a, a prison system, right? Because you're a prisoner of war, essentially. And so now you're only being able to learn this language disconnected from your, your original language and everything around you is susceptible. So now that you're being oppressed by a system, or you're being in a system that's controlled by your oppressors, the only option that you seem to have is to work within that system. And so it becomes much easier to push your objective or agenda onto these groups of people that have been disconnected from their culture and are just going back to what you said earlier, trying to survive. So if the only means for you to survive, which was the case in America, the United States of America specifically, um, is to go and use this opportunity. So for example, um, 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 Africans or prisoners of war, enslaved people during the time of the Civil War could be recognized and not considered three-fifths of a person. But even then, I, I believe that they were still could be considered three-fifths of a person and was treated as such if they fought in the Civil War. Right. And this is over to keep slavery or not, essentially. Right. Um, and neither side cared. But this was a means for the prisoners of war to be able to have some sense of, of freedom, which was not realistic and it didn't happen. Right. But this is their perceived reality because of what they're being told. And then keep in mind, they're going based off in a language that's not native to them because they've lost already theirs. You know, so thinking about it in that sense and then relating it back to the modern era of the United States military and how they're able to um, gain individuals to fight their agenda. It's the same thing. It's the same measure of, of traumatizing brainwashing of the African peoples in prisoners of war. And I'm not saying that African people are um the highest population of people that are in the military, but that's a, that's a large sum of them. It's a large sum of them in the military. And a lot of times before we get to the, the modern, I think like even in the 2000s or early 2000s and like 90s, 80s, you had this case where you're able to, in order for, and I, I even think even before that, but people who are incarcerated, which makes them a modern slave, Right, outside of wage slavery, you had modern slaves in the military because they have no rights at all. They don't barely get paid cents uh, to the dollar. And so those people could get out of incarceration if they joined the military. So you have that case as well. So when you're looking at all these different methods of controlling people, controlling people's minds, controlling people's decisions, um, you that that's a huge aspect of it on top of the storytelling as to the why or like make America great or like uh, keep America safe, all, all these different, different things. Um, so they, the, the America is uh, really good at not only storytelling, but brainwashing, essentially brainwashing people to forget themselves and forget their inner power. All right. This brainwash people, uh, the effect of it uh, is evidence. It's evident all across the places, no? Uh, you see, like I was saying before, I think it is really very important that we consider this. Um, one, one Israeli writer 
and the writer of the 21 lesson of the, the 21 lesson of the century it did say something important that <laughs> it was making reference of uh, of human being being able to lie to themselves and yet believe it for example that when we die we will go to heaven and we believe it and uh, like for example the credit system we believe it that i come to you or like what used to happen before that we come to the market i bring uh, a bunch of banana and exchange for you for a certain amount of i don't know maybe peanut or something you get peanuts i get banana we exchange it you don't get banana i get peanut so nobody is cheated because we both agree that this is what is going to be for now we can we can both see it that is how other species do trading trade by barter but now we have a credit system where for example the american dollars have been imposed on every other part of the world that it is more valuable. Not because we all agree that this is the way it is. We just have to accept it because we don't have power to change it. Let me explain what I mean by that. That the Americans, they will go to Congo, uh, dig a hole on the ground to get copper or whatever resources they want. Then they tell the Congolese people, I'm going to pay you a certain amount of dollars. But what is dollars? Dollar is a currency that was printed in the United States. Uh, now, what is left in Congo is a hole. How much amount of dollar is going to be uh, shipped from the United States to feed that hole? We can see that it will not work. Instead, they place value on the currency, the paper that they brought. And they tell you that where they just give you this briefcase filled with dollar, that is equal to the hole that I've dug on your land. And that is equal to the pollution that I've caused in the Niger Delta of Nigeria with 21 million people uh, uh, jobless. That is equal to the abuse, the war, everything. Giving you this one, many have paid you. This is a story that we all come to uh, accept or agree to accept certain uh, treatment. Then it becomes the reality. But that will have not always been the reality because it is not real for every other species. But for us, it is real. If we are not careful how we tell our story, the victim can actually be seen as a, as a, as a criminal. Uh, you look around among many Africans in the diaspora or even the people of Africa, they end up speaking the language of their oppressor. They go on venerating the gods of the, of the oppressor. They keep on reciting the stories of their oppressor. And while they are doing this, they have forgotten their own. But the question is, how did we get there? How come we didn't realize that the gods that you are worshipping today were the gods that were brought to you by those who violated you so, so vehemently, so badly that you wanted to run away from them? That was just yesterday. But now, you are not imitating them, doing things they used to do. How did we degenerate to that level? How come we don't realize it? I have still tried to see the power of story in that. Yeah, I mean, that that's something that's the ongoing struggle, right? Um, is being able to be able to see that. But I'm... There, Something that is lacking on in the diaspora is is the proper educational setting for that. I was I, I was in a um a lecture 
with Malifia Shanti, who is someone that created the concept of Afrocentricity, but also the African department at Temple University in Pennsylvania. And this was through a medium from Mich uh, Michigan University uh, called the Eye of Africa. And so what they do, they try to do is bring a lot of scholars who are African or also who are studying in Africa to create a community around people who are interested about, about what people have to say in an intellectual, intellectual sense and what's going on. Um, but ha having more of, of those types of settings, but not only on like the university level, um, I think it should happen as early as in grade school. Like people should be informed of these things. But the problem is, is that we don't have a university I, I wouldn't even say anywhere in this world, if, if it exists, let me know now, that is tailored towards building the African community based off African traditions or African stories. It's always, from what I can tell and see, is imitating our oppressors and our oppressor system, which is ironic because the first university was created in Africa, in Mali, right? The first forms of universities that had existed. Um, and so it's really interesting that that's the case, but it is. And that's a huge problem um, for us because when you have these educational institutions that's imitating or mimicking our oppressors, we'll never be able to build our communities the way that we want to because we're imitating the wrong person. So then we're starting to build people in our community that wants to basically um, be the champion of capitalism. When capitalism was was uh, rooted and based off and founded on African bodies and labor and exploitation, right? So um, those are the, the challenging things that we need to address, but the only means of doing that is through education and, and a radical sense of it in our own education and our own means of um, having institutions set up in place that will be able to reward people that go through those institutions, creating jobs off of that, creating our entire own ecosystem that's not dependent upon at all our oppressors and their systems or way of life at all. Like in the, that, that has to happen in order for us to really gain an understanding as to what has happened to us. But um, I don't blame our community. I, I think that it's, it's a huge challenge because it's never like I'm sure it's probably happened before maybe thousands of years ago and I just don't have record of it. But as far as like this time frame now, like it's never happened to this group of people to this extent of um, mass cultural genocide or attempted uh, physical genocide or in any of the sort. Cultural genocide isn't even recognized um, under the label of genocide, first of all. And also when you try to... Um, uh, prosecute the the means of genocide that has happened to African people is also not uh, it's not recognized and I guess they want to say under the ex postal law but um, it, it happened and it should be recognized and it should be rectified for but they're not going to do that so we have to do it um, but I think it's really challenging for us to do it because of the type of programming that happened to us and the types of barriers that do exist as far as people thinking that there's no money in that or there is no success in building African communities. Like so, so many different things, but the solution to me is that we have to build it no matter what. And if we have to find the people who are, uh, I, I guess, excited about those types of uh, building and communities, then that that's that. And that ends up happening to be 10% or less 
so be it. It can grow over time, but that's the biggest factor is creating a system of knowledge and truth that is going to benefit our buildings of communities in the diaspora. All right, you made mention of uh, cultural genocide. Uh, perhaps people don't understand what that means. Can you break it down for us, uh, at least from the point of view of African diaspora, uh, or maybe to other persons who are trying to understand if there is any such thing as genocide uh, towards the African people or cultural genocide towards the African people. So people don't even phantom to think about that at all. Right. So cultural genocide basically is is the whole aspect of <laughs> having people be viscerally stripped away from their hometown or like wherever they came from um, around the world and placed in these and make camps of labor. And so this was a case of people being beaten, uh, beaten severely, sometimes to death, if you even uttered your African name. If you even used your African name at all instead of the name that was given to you by the person who was keeping you enslaved or keeping you as a prisoner of war, you would die and you would be uh, dead, like killed in front of masses of people that look like you. And so that is a process of a cultural genocide, not to mention other rituals that they did, the rapings of the mother in front of the father and the children, or the rapings of the father in front of the children and the mother, or the rapings in, of the children in front of the parents. That That's a form of cultural genocide and humiliation. Um, the the <laughs> an inability to have them uh, speak their own language. Um, yeah, like there, there's so many different facets of it, but the, that whole process of it was cultural genocide, even to this day of um, not having uh, any type of retribution towards Africans being able to be connected to their African language as a form of cultural genocide or having us be enforced or assimilated into systems and institutions as a form of cultural genocide because you like, African people who are labeled as African-Americans uh, have no choice but to see themselves as American because, because they were taken away from their homes. That's cultural genocide, literally. Like they don't have a nation, they don't have anything to protect them, they don't have any place to go but this place that they were brought to that were entrapment camps, essentially. That, that's a form of... of Culture genocide to give give you an idea of it and to even um, but now people label these places as their homes but they they were taken away uh, from their cultures but then there is also um, a mass killing that went on uh, in the Congo and in other places around the world where it was either orchestrated by uh, like oppressors who happen to be European or not, um, they, they did mass killings of Africans as well. So you can talk about the physical genocide or the physical genocide that would have happened in the process of enslavement um, because some people were not going for it. So they would either kill themselves or do riots or whatever the case may be and be killed or do runaways and be killed. So um, it, it's multiple ways of, of looking at the cultural genocide. But when you think of a people who no longer have any 
um, connection to their mother tongue or their stories or where they came from, like that, that's the cultural genocide that has taken place, um, it, which is really massive because when you don't know that type of information, um, it, it has psychological impacts, which we can see in America. So, all right, yeah, you are talking of America now. We can talk of a talk of the this genocide at a global scale against African people. Uh, in that, is it possible that those events that you describe that have happened during slavery, during um, the period of capturing African into into slavery, selling them, and Creating this uh, crime against humanity, the torture, the raping, the maiming—is it possible that those events can have consequences? Is it possible that those things didn't just go away? That we can I'm, talk of the epic genetic trauma that were intentionally yeah. done to happen to these people for generations to come. Is it possible that those things do live also today? Yeah, absolutely. It's had an impact. Like when we're thinking about um, destruction and, and cultural genocide, like something else that we can look at on a global scale is religion, right? So the first thing, I won't, I won't say the first thing, but one of the first things that were targeted from um, European oppressors were trying to destroy the, the religion, right? And you, you talked a little bit about people um, utilizing their oppressor's religion well they it was demonized they would they would literally say oh this is the the demon's religion or or like demonizing them and then using because of your religious practice as a means to justify the dehumanization of these people um and so that that was huge and that's something that has had a prevalent impact on um the african diaspora community even to this day like when you talk about African traditions to certain people who may claim that they're Muslim or Christian, they'll demonize it. And they'll look at it as something that's demonic. Well, that that's epigenetic trauma and also brainwashing because they did, the oppressors did such a great job at uh, their narrative telling of demonizing our own cultures and traditions that that's what they see it as. And, th and this was strategically done during the Council of Nicaea. I, I really um, encourage listeners to look into the Council of Nicaea to understand um, what actually took place there. Um, but uh, th that's one way that in that in targeting the religion of different cultures targets your, your self-esteem, targets your dignity, targets a, a lot of different things that I feel like we have as a diasporic community fell victim to. Um, and so one of the main things is, is to <laughs> recapture that somehow. But uh, when you target someone's religion, you target their identity. And doing the whole whitewashing of um, these religions can also really harm the identity of, of African people who don't have white straight hair or blue eyes or whatever the case may be. Um, so it, it's very strategic. And that's actually not just something that has happened um, in the case of like Americas or Africa, but all around the world. You see this with Buddha as well. You see a whitewashing of Buddha, which isn't uh, to me, it's a philosophy, but even the fact that this is a prominent figure and in, in some places they whitewash him shows the impact of colonialism and imperialism, um, even in, in the Asias or all over the world, right? Because even, it even hits Australia. Um, so it's a huge factor that 
uh, even I think allows this acquiescence that takes place of our people not speaking up and taking action as much as they should, right? As far as like going against the dollar or um, taking, like making sure that our, the leaders in African countries are held accountable for their actions um, that support white nations versus their own needs, um, so many different things. So I think it has a huge impact and it permits for a lot of the destructive policies that do exist to remain or the social contract that we uphold to remain as well, so. Uh-huh. Uh, before you were also uh, saying that um, all this genocide and crime that are committed against the African people, of course, are not accepted at the international community as crime. So for this reason, where we can simply just ignore them and move on. Uh, but we will not say the same to uh, to the genocide in Nazi Germany that the Israelis should just ignore it and move on. We don't want to do that. We tell them, let's evaluate what has happened. Somebody must pay for this crime. And uh, to the to the Jewish, they make sure that every child they born know this story. Why is it just is it just random? It is not random. No. They are making sure that they are terrorizing that image in them, making sure that they help every Jewish child understand the pain that their ancestors went through. That is not random. Right. So now, we are on our own as Africans, because I, I believe that the Jewish, of course, they, they are not waiting for other people to come and recognize it before they can know that their ancestors have passed through terrible time in Nazi Germany. But for Africans, when we say that what we have gone through has not been accepted, accepted by who? Do we want the European, who are the perpetrator of this act, to recognize that they have committed a crime? Or do we need to uphold it ourselves and accuse them officially for the crime that they have committed? Who is going to accept that this is a crime and who is going to uphold it? Who is the accuser? Yes. So absolutely, it needs to be us, right? But the problem is, <laughs> in that case, is what court system is going to uphold that? Because who runs these court systems on an international scale? Even, even the um, international criminal courts, okay, their laws are backed by the people who are the perpetrators of this. So yes, of course, there's a, ish, there's, um, a reason right, why they they don't recognize it <laughs> at all, at all, um, on any level, like, at, they, the one genocide that they do recognize is the genocide of Rwanda, which was also um, orchestrated and influenced by Europeans, but they, that, that's one that they recognize, but on a global scale of the entire genocide that has happened, they don't, they don't recognize it, and, um, it, and I'm saying that in a sense of a legal sense, right, because who creates these laws, and who are these laws created by, so if we do want them to be recognized, and, and as far as, like, it for, for, to hold them accountable, excuse me, then we have to rewrite the laws, and create our own court systems, right, so, and, like, that, that's a big, that's a, a big thing that would have to happen. We would have to shift everything, right? The way that we run our nations, the way that we create our laws and found our laws, like everything needs to be radically changed in order for that to happen. Because as it stands, the laws that are upheld are not the laws that 
are for us or or help us or or in any sense. So when I when I say it's not recognized, I mean like through the laws that was created by our oppressors anyway. So ideally for me in my reality before you know, I pass on to the next life, I would love for us to create our own court systems and laws that that target and hold accountable the systems, institutions, and individuals that aim to continuously destroy us and commit different types of genocide or, or because they benefit off of it, you know, in an economic sense. So, uh, but that that's not the case today. And it's, it's really unfortunate. And there's been a lot of talks on, um, you know, what is it restitutions or not no they don't use that word um they use something else uh reparations excuse me um i think that restitutions should be had but they use um reparations as a means to be able to uh acknowledge it but it's just not enough like that's just a, a monetary amount to to say something and it's like no like it, it should be something that's ongoingly recognized um and it is something that we should keep making an issue as far as like telling, making sure this story is told so it never happens again. And I feel like a lot of times when we're talking about um, genocides and injustice and enslavement or whatever the case may be, the type of rhetoric that follows it is, oh, like that was so long ago. That was in the past. It doesn't matter anymore. But it does because that past is what is allowing for the present to happen with the continuous raping of resources in African countries or the factor that arbitrary borders still exist that were created by oppressors in Africa itself or the factor that, um, you know, African-Americans don't know their mother tongue or where they had been taken from or um, the factor that it's not right, like so many different things. So it, it's just, um, it, it's a, it's a huge, a huge shift that we have to make um, on, in an intellectual sense, but also action actions. Uh, and it, it's going to be a long process to be able to create our own court systems and own, own laws because we have to radically gain communities that are thinking on this level and doing the work towards it. Thank you for that, Nakasha. Um, now, I, I'm thinking, because the way the institution is set up in Africa, and like you also have pointed out, uh, it's a system of... Um, in one time in my book, I was saying that um, African is look upon like a satellite, no? Satellite of a university, satellite campus, sorry that when you have a university and maybe because it's so you have a lot of students that are going to this university you cannot accommodate all of them inside the main university you build a campus outside of the university uh, but these campuses are not actually the main state they're just a subsidiary of the university they are responding to the university because the students still need to come from there to attend to the main university when they are doing graduation, they graduate in the main university. They only go there to stay in the satellite campuses because the main university is not big enough to accommodate all of them. So that is how the Europeans see Africa in the time of colonialism. That is how they see it today. So that when they were building their infrastructure, they just did the minimum for the entire population for as long as right. it helped them to exploit the mineral resources to build whatever they want for themselves. When it comes to yeah. where they stay, 
they build what they refer to as the government official area, the GROA. And these are, of course, very many in Nigeria and in many other parts of Africa. So that what they see is not like they, they didn't really have the intention of developing the African economy when they had the chance. And the consequence of that, if we are, if story is anything we need to go by here, is that some people inherited this uh, this doctrine, this system of operation, and they continue to perpetuate it for as long as it is permitted, which is in Africa today, it is permitted. Mm. In Nigeria, we just did an election. In May 29, this month, we're going to be swearing in a new president. Uh, mm. who is the name of Ahmed Tinubu. Uh, see, he just won the election and he disappeared from Nigeria. We started hearing that he's, uh, he's in France. Whether he was sick or they go there to do what they usually do, we call, uh, as uh, they will say, we have a president. Uh, we don't really have a clear idea of what is happening in Nigeria. By that, I mean, if we really have a people, have a system, have a structure, have a government, that government should be, be responding to the people, to the local people. But we see that, that during colonialism, they were not responding to the people. We still have the, 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 the Queen of England as the head of the Commonwealth. So the British is seen as a main campus, as a main university, as a main economy. Every other part of the Commonwealth I just say as the satellite campuses, they are just responding to the main thing, which is the United Kingdom. That is how mm -hmm. many Europeans see Africa. And today, we are still responding in that sense. How can we be free? How can we do things our own? How can we prosecute them for their crime? If we are not even there, we are not in existence. At the United Nations, we don't have any power to decide anything. We just need to agree to what has been decided. If the if UK, for example, and US and Canada decide that they are going to attack any country in Africa, and this attack needs to be vetted at the United Nations, Africa have no veto power to say, no, we are not going to vote in your favor. So which means that tomorrow they can decide that just raise a certain article, they vote, then what country in Africa is going to be attacked by NATO? Nobody is going to stand up because we are not there. We are not present. Does it have any implication on how we might be able to hold them accountable, rewrite our constitution, and even interpret our senses and sensibility? Yeah, um, yeah I, I want to go back to the first point you made of them not developing um the places that they were colonizing. And yet not only did they do that, but the like before pre-colonization, um, these African communities had societies that were built at high level um, and had infrastructure, right? That infrastructure was destroyed by the colonizers that would come. So not only did they not quote unquote not build, but they had destroyed what was already built because African societies were advanced. Um, so that's one thing. Two, he, I, I really don't see how African, from my opinion, I don't see how African nations can go forward with maintaining the same 
systems or laws in place that was given to them by oppressors. And the issue is, is a lot of times with the current leaders, they're, they're, it's, it's almost like indirect rule is still in place as far as like some of the leaders in African countries, I want to say specifically for like West Africa, but it happens across the continent with different um, nations. You have people who are heavily influenced by these European systems or education systems I'm telling you about. Um, and that's also a part of the problem. People who are in the pockets of Europeans who are making these deals behind the scene. And so uh, that greatly impacts the future of these African nations. And also having these artificial borders still an issue. Um, and, and I say issue as far as like still present. I, I really don't see how you can go forward with something that was instated by the enemy of as a continent going against the people in the in the first place, right? Like there's absolutely no reason to have as many countries in Africa as we do aside from benefiting Europeans. But that's not how a lot of Africans see it, right? Because uh, also, again, going back into the whole brainwashing. Um, so that, that's a huge issue. And, and then that plays into which laws are influenced by what, right? So, um, or whose laws are being stated. You can go switch from French law to British law, depending upon where you're going. And, um, or sometimes you may have like different countries that took different um, ideas from different places around the world. But that, that's, an, that's also an issue because nothing like this is, so it really has to be us, either as a community in the diaspora coming together and saying like, hey, this can't happen anymore. And we find ways of um, protesting in a sense that it's actually gonna make an impact like boycotting um, in the economic sense where we can really hit for them to listen to what our voices are as a community. So that may look like, it may look drastic. It may look like us like taking a stance against using you know, technology, so the child mining and child labor that happens can stop. Or it may look like us like continuously, um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, like it, it could look like a maraud of different things, like addressing the, the mining companies that's happening by divesting in gold. I don't like it, but that also impacts the country. So there's different things that we have to look at as a community as to how do we address um, neocolonialism and globalization for us to have sustainability within our communities. And um, as it stands, it, that's not happening because we're basing that off of systems that are still in place by previous oppressors. So um, I, I hope for it to stand. A lot of people thought that the African Union would be something of the sort, but since the creator of that, you know, was basically assassinated, I would say, um, you know, that that hasn't happened either. So I really think that the only option is for the people to stand together in different, different sense. And, and the part of that goes back to storytelling again. All right. Talking of storytelling, uh, the people need to know what has happened today. I want to go back again uh, to the short story that I, I've written in 2015. In that we need to see ourselves, all of us, as having a role to play. Now, the storyteller in the book 
His role was just to tell story. Okay, it happened that he also had another role. He was the eldest in the village, therefore he was the village head. But that is a different role. The role of telling the story is a vital one. Mm. Particularly looking at today uh, in a globalized village, there is a lot of noise out there. But are we coordinating the narration we want to be there? I know that when you are telling the story from your point of view as African, okay, I want to clarify also another thing that within the European context, within the Western consciousness, for the fact that you are an African, just for the fact that you are existing as an African, you are already a suspect. I think many Africans need to understand that. That if nobody is targeting you, it's because you are irrelevant. If you are relevant at all as an African, as a person of African descent, you are a suspect. You need to put that one at the back of your mind and then do what you have to do, which is tell the story, be a voice, be a light, be the candle, shine, don't die. Don't die because they are not going to approve you. Because if you go to YouTube and put certain messages that might sound like you are not in the mainstream. It is true that sometimes you can be blocked. It is true that maybe on Facebook or LinkedIn or wherever you might be blocked because you are not you are not reflecting the mainstream message. But again, whose story are we telling? Why do we need to tell that story that way? If we want something to change, we are not going to be repeating the same pattern of thing because it means that we are crazy. The only way the thing is going to change is if each and every one of us can stand from the little angle that we are and begin to broadcast. Broadcast the light that you see. Broadcast the truth that you know. Remember that all of us are little antenna. The signal that comes to you, transmit it, the little one that you know. Bear in mind this important truth that if you are an African diaspora, you are a person of African descent, whether you are in Africa or outside. If you are of substance, you are a suspect. Put it at the mm. back of your mind, but do what you have to do for the interest of who you represent. I think it's an important case to consider it. And I, I'm, and I would say that a lot of people do know. A lot of people know that, and that's why they try to align themselves as much with uh, their white counterparts, right? Um, so I, I think that it's really important to, to realize that, um, even if it's not said verbally, like, like out the front, like you don't have it being said overtly, like a, a lot of people talk about covert and overt racism, just because it's not overt doesn't mean they don't see you as a suspect or the racism doesn't exist or isn't there or whatever the case may be. So it's definitely something we have to uh, uh, consider and not only consider, but be cautious of and to teach our children about. All right. Now, how could we, what is your recommendation? How could we use storytelling to change the narration? Because again, I think storytelling is powerful. Anyway, for those who didn't understand what I was saying before, storytelling can basically make the person that is sitting next to you take a gun and shoot you. You could just harm the person because of story. That is how we function as human beings. Story is powerful. 
you know, at one point in Nigeria, story was uh, story history was removed from our educational system. Our story, our history, the history we, we are taught in Nigeria is already highly infiltrated or actually moderated to accommodate Western idea, not the African idea. But even despite that, for a number of years, history was removed from school. But mm. how could a government do a thing like that to a people? I don't know of any, mm. any progressive country in the world where they don't teach the, their history. How can we use story to change the narration, at least in our own, for our own interest, from our own point of view? What would you recommend as a color strategies? I think the biggest thing is making sure that people know how important their story is and to encourage people you meet um, to share their stories. I know personally, it doesn't even matter who, who I meet. It could be from people from all, all walks of life. Um, when I get to hear their stories, I immediately tell them, you need to write that. You need to publish that. You need to write a book. You need to tell people that story because um, I, I find people's stories really, really fascinating. And there, I, I want to say there was a point in time where a lot of people knew how fascinating storytelling was. And so you did have a lot of philosophers and a lot of people who were encouraged to write. So I, I think that's the first thing. And for people who don't like to write, there's other means of telling your story. So Think about other mediums you can use to have your story be told. Um, think about creating a community around that or creating a community in general, even if it's local, if it's digital, online, like just different things of um, creating an environment where not only you can tell your story, but you can absorb other people's stories because that in itself can also inspire you in, in different ways or things that you can learn from from that. And the final thing is think about how you can be able to obtain stories or reach stories that is far from you, that like being able to listen to stories that may come from India, or may come from Kyrgyzstan or may come from Namibia or come from, <laughs> I don't know, Peru, like different places around the world, like be encouraged to not only listen to other people's stories from those places, but being able to get your audience there as well, as far as like sharing your stories there too. So um, think big when you're thinking about your narratives and think how you're able to use your story in the economic sense, because it is possible. The only thing that's not possible is what we say isn't possible to ourselves. And in that I'm saying that we are the only ones that can limit ourselves. There's nothing else now but us, especially in this new age. So thank you so much for having me be able to have this exciting topic with you. And I hope the listeners were super engaged and, and loved the talk and are inspired to share the story immediately. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Now, uh, what relevance does story has to uh, the project that you are uh, running? Because you did mention of two, the more project and also the project that you have in Ghana. Is there any way storytelling can be relevant today? What do you have to say about that? Absolutely. So the United Association of Moors, I founded in 2019, and we have been utilizing storytelling in a variety of different ways. We founded the company based off understanding that there are biased algorithms that exist online, um, specifically tailored to ethnic communities and or minorities. 
um, in certain places. And so we aim to be a center where we could uh, capture as much information within the diaspora so people could come and learn about their um, their history and differences, different African businesses that may exist, different, different things. And so we we founded our organization based off collecting narratives within the diaspora community and being able to share it with other people. That's the first thing. Um, and so with that, we've, we've grown into um, authorship, like creating different uh, children's books. We have a children's book called Ketia Noon Taliba. It's about a young girl that ends up remembering her past life, which is a really beautiful and unique story. But we also use a maraud of different uh, visuals to gain people's attention as well with different African stories that can be told. Um, we also have our own podcast, the more podcasts as well, where we get to interview people from all different walks of life that get to tell their story from where they're from. We get people from uh, Gambia to Morocco to Vietnam, really, really phenomenal. And I'm really blessed to be able to have that, uh, that means of being able to capture people's story and like share them with other people. Um, to Nihas Foundation, I just recently opened up. This is an organization that's dedicated to sustainable development in communities. And what that looks like for us right now is two different things, right? We, we're opening up a research center, which if you hear if you're hearing this and you are a researcher and you're interested, please contact us, right? Um, we're opening up a research center that's dedicated to research that's happening on the continent. We're starting off with Ghana specifically, and we want it to be in the, the realm of uh, sustainable development. And so right now we're focusing on a research project uh, dedicated towards agriculture, specifically as it comes to revitalizing soil because of the influence of the agribusiness in African nations. Um, but we're looking at it specifically in Ghana right now and how different um, businesses or NGOs may come in and, and do their, you know, projects, right, that they're trying to help these people in the, in this country, um, as far as food, but they're what they're doing is they're actually replacing the seeds a lot of time, changing them from heirloom seeds to non-heirloom seeds because they own the patent, and this is a means of um, e economic genocide, right? Another form of genocide in that sense because you're controlling people's food uh, through these patents, and they're also simultaneously destroying the soil. Um, not to mention other other methods that can destroy the soil as well. And so we're researching this microbe called archaea, which can be a means of revitalizing that soil. Um, and so we think it's really valuable for African uh, researchers and intellectuals to join this project as far as research. And we're going to be applying to uh, different grants for this to be able to fund. And we want this research center to get get huge notice and be able to gain uh, different scholars from all over the continent to the world within the diaspora, because we need researchers that are African for Africans and dedicated to building Africa. So uh, that that's what we're aiming to do currently. And so that whole thing is, is based off collecting uh, data from the Africans themselves and the people that are actually doing the work as far as like farming and know the land well and different people we can work with, with uh, bringing in this microbe and seeing how it could help develop um, the soil. 
So we're going to be working on other projects as well, similar to uh, this in the realm of sustainable innovation. But really what we're, we're doing is we're trying to uh, change this happenstance of having outside foreigners come into African countries and doing this research and getting the grant money, right? Because it happens a lot, um, believe it or not. And so we, we want to share this space and bring this space to the African scholars themselves and have it be ran by um, Africans themselves. And we can do that and we will do that. So if you're interested in that type of research and excited about it, please reach out to us. We're the Nihost Foundation. Um, and yeah, we're really excited about that type of work that we're doing. And then the other thing that we're also trying to do um, is preserving these seeds, preserving these non-GMO seeds as much as possible and replanting them in in rural areas in Ghana as well. We want to ensure that um, we're able to have heirloom seeds because there is a huge uh, boom that's going on with these GMO seeds right now. And some people may see it as an advantage of your being able to control the livestock or um, the food and be able to get the most out of it or charge more for GMOs, but we don't see it that way. And so we're trying to make sure that we're able to preserve these seeds as much as possible. Um, Alongside, we're working on different projects that can preserve different stories and, and storytelling and narratives. And we've partnered up with um, other organizations like Sadache um, to be able to do that in a digital sense as well. Um, so yeah, there, there's so many different projects we have going on and that we're gonna get started soon. So thank you for asking. Thank you so much for that. Um, now, what is your motivation for this uh, type of project? Because this uh, seems to be a large project and they have a lot of impact. Tell me about your personal motivation for them. Okay, yeah, my personal motivation is I, I do think that we have to be aware of, of what where the current attention is taking us, right? And so there is a, a booming field, like I talked about the agribusiness that's um, doing a lot of work as far as going into communities and patenting different seeds. And, and it's really scary for me to like know about this, right? And so the only control I have is to do this type of work as far as like researching it and researching it in the sense that I'm not only like reading and writing and collecting narratives, but doing the action behind uh, mitigating those things from impacting our environment. And, and so I am an environment, I'm, I'm sorry, I am passionate about the environment um, as well with my research. I am a researcher and anthropologist, and that also includes learning about the environment and protecting the environment and, and different, different things. So um, that's my immediate interest. I'm also in interested in growing food because I believe that as African people and also people in general, we have to be producers. We can't continue to be consumers, right? So I'm, I'm a huge proponent for being a producer and not a consumer. Um, or if you are a consumer, you're, you producing should outweigh your consuming. Um, so that's like my personal motivation. And I, I think that, you know, we, we have the ability to do these things. It's not like, I, I guess it sounds large, but it's not really a large thing because this these types of things are created all the time um, by people that look differently from us. And, and there's no heat about it, right? They get the funding easily. So we're just doing it on the other side. And, you know, I'm really excited about where our research is going to take us. So 
All right, now what would be your final thought here, considering what we have discussed today uh, about storytelling uh, for African and African diaspora, and of course, how to leverage storytelling for our own interests? Let me understand what would be your final take here. No, my final take is whoever is listening to this is for a reason, and you should, you know, tell your story, whatever that may be. And don't only tell your story as like telling your friend, but um, writing your story or or finding another means that you like that speaks to you to tell your story. And my other thing is I have written a book on my experience in life and also using a lot of history because I am a history buff. And so if you want to learn more, gain more of my narrative, uh, please purchase my book. Um, it's called Play the Game, Hierarchical Simulation. You can find it at www.nicosi-a.com. So, um, yeah, like, thank you so much for listening, guys. I really appreciate it. I like your conversation. They are really rich. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me again. And, yeah, I hope I, I, hope I get invited one more at the time. <laughs> certainly, certainly. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate and review Obehe podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehe Ewafo. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you in the next episode.